You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on the Westwood One Podcast Network. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz of Conservative Review, here in the house, Wednesday afternoon, May 16th. And yes, last night was another Tuesday night primary election where our movement has been asleep. And eight of all the eight incumbent House Republicans who voted for the omnibus bill were easily reelected. We lost every open seat, and Raul Labrador lost his bid for governor in Idaho. So, lovely night for conservatives. Once again, we are asleep at the wheel. We are not paying attention to primaries. We're not even recruiting. We're not trying to reform the process. And therefore, we're going to continue to elect Republicans that are clueless on the issues, do not share our values, and frankly, are just not in tune with the important issues of our time. And speaking of important issues of our time, I was really excited about today's show. I've been meaning to have this guest on for a few weeks already, uh, a new friend of mine. This is probably the third time we're talking together about the threat of Hezbollah in Latin America now growing to Mexico, working with the drug cartels, ties into the drug crisis, killing tens of thousands of our people, obviously the border violence, immigration threats, interdictions. Now we have of so many special interest aliens, a.k.a. Middle Easterners, coming over. And the convergence of all of the activity we're seeing with Iran, a lot of it good news. The Trump administration headed in a great direction. Um, but if you put yourself in Iran's shoes, where do they have us around the neck? I believe it is their operation through Hezbollah, also directly with their um, their their uh, military, their diplomatic tools, everything they have. We're going to discuss today the seriousness of this threat. So today I wanted to bring on, like I said, a new friend of mine that I'm just honored to call a friend, uh, Joseph Humeyer. Uh He is, if you don't recognize the name, I quoted him in one of my recent articles and I'll link to in show notes. He is executive director of the Secure Free Society that will also be in our show notes. He served in the Marines for a number of, number of years. He is one of the foremost experts on terrorism in Latin America, um, testifies frequently before Congress, as well as a whole litany of foreign legislatures, educating them on the threat of Iran and Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere. He was even an expert witness recently in a Peruvian trial against uh, Hezbollah operative, the first of its kind in that country. We'll talk about that later. He's also also the author of a book, Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. We're going to link to uh, the you know the Amazon link where you can get that book. Very important book. Uh, he's his parents are of Bolivian descent, so he knows the language, he knows the culture, the economies, the, the nuances 
of an area that, frankly, many of us know nothing about, and that's that's the problem. So with no further ado, I'd love to welcome Joseph Humeyer to The Conservative Conscience. Hey, Joseph, are you on the line? I'm on the line. Thank you, Daniel. Quite an introduction. I appreciate that. Well, no, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. It's It's been a lonely fight. Uh, my my yeah. listeners know this already. Uh, I had our national security correspondent um, on to discuss this, but frankly, no, no, you know, Jordan's no slouch here, but you know he's like me. We're just learning new things about our own backyard. Everyone seems to have an opinion about the Middle East, about North Korea, but no one seems to know what's going on in our own hemisphere. Um, let's just start broadly and then go more specific to some of the more recent activity. Broadly speaking, Joseph. So, you know, most Americans, let's face it, you know, we're into America. We don't know much about areas that don't pertain to us, and you know, unless we have reason to study the region. So, you know, we think of all people in, in, in tor- terms of groups. In Latin America, we think of, I, I guess, you know, we think of Latinos, Hispanics. Um, the last thing mm-hmm. we think of is, you know, Sharia law, Islamic yeah. extremism, Iran, Hezbollah. How did Iran develop this stranglehold through Hezbollah on Latin America? Um, just over the last number of decades, what's the foundation for it? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, essentially what you're saying, there's been a tremendous amount of ignorance on this issue specifically, not just among the public, but I, you know, I work a lot with the defense and intelligence community, even among that community, which tends to have a better insight on, on all these you know, threats that are permitting around the world. But, you know, just let me start by saying, you know, so, yes, correct. I don't think a lot of people know about this. Nevertheless, the largest Islamic terrorist attack in the Western Hemisphere prior to September 11th happened in Latin America. It happened in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And it happened twice, actually. It happened in 1992 and in 1994 when Iran and Hezbollah decided to uh, attack first the Israeli embassy in 1992, killing about 25 people, injuring hundreds more, and then uh, attacked its Jewish community center, which was Argentinians. They're Jewish, but they're still Argentinians. And about 85 of them died in, in 1994. So collectively, over 100 people died, you know, several hundred injured. That was the largest Islamic terrorist attack in the Western Hemisphere prior to September 11th. Obviously, September 11th numbers were much, much greater. So it's not like Latin America is new to this, right? They, they, they've, had, they've experienced this. They've seen it. And people that were around there that time remember it. Um, and this was a pretty prominent attack because before that, there was no, no evidence or really no, no indication that Hezbollah was operating on this side of the world. Uh, I mean, we, they have, they've attacked, you know, the, the, the embassy, U.S. embassy in, in Beirut. They attacked, you know, the Cobar Towers. And they made some attacks in the Middle East and Lebanon, but they never really attacked here. Uh, and one of the reasons they denied that attack so much because it breaks the myth that Lebanon only really cares about Lebanon. I mean, Hezbollah only cares about Lebanon, the resistance movement for the Lebanese people, which is not true, right? They're, they're, they're a proxy agent for Iran. Uh, so what Iran did is Iran pretty much figured out that this is a very – soft underbelly for the United States, that they have a tremendous amount of uh, advantages in Latin America that allows them to move faster uh, and, and, and without the United States being coming. One of those advantages is a tremendous amount of Lebanese Syrian populations. I mean, there's more Lebanese, and they're not all Muslim, but there's more Lebanese people in Brazil than there are in Lebanon. So like Brazil, for example, has 7 million Lebanese uh, uh, inhabitants. Uh, and, you know, I think Lebanon only has six point something million. So it's it's greater. Now, granted, not all those. Wait, wait, so you said seven million? Seven million. Yeah. Wow. I, I think very few people realize that. Yeah, no, that that's one of those data points that really you don't catch. If you go, anyone goes to Brazil, 
they'll, they'll notice it because, you know, one of the number one TV shows is, uh, is, an, is, is kind of a, about a Muslim family assimilating into the United States. One of the top restaurants is uh, Middle Eastern food. I mean, it, it's assimilated into the Brazilian culture. It's very much uh, part of that uh, society now. And this is after several years. So the migration that took place from the Middle East to Latin America happened hundreds of years ago. So there, there was already these populations that existed. And there was one particular population in the south of South America, which is, you know, a place called the tri-border area, basically the intersection of Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil. That, that's become a big point of com- conversation for policymakers nowadays because it's become like the wild, wild west of narco-trafficking, transnational organized crime, and, and, and just illicit contraband for anything you want. It's like that scene in uh, Star Wars where you have like this bar and you have like every uh, criminal element in the bar kind of organized. And, and that's what the tribal areas become. Is that because the population is somewhat Arabic there? So, no, it's because so the population, the migration happened years ago, right? Uh, the, what happened is through time, this, this is a very uh, stateless area. There was, the, you know, there's free trade zones that were set up and there's free trade zones had different authorities and restrictions that the rest of the national government had. So they weren't able to do the kind of inspections on this area that they were on. And so the Arab community actually kicked off a lot of the, the, the commercial enterprises, but then started moving it into the informal economy and then, you know, then later just went into the illicit economy, into narco-trafficking in particular. Paraguay, which is a country uh, that basically set, was set up like a sort of a buffer state between Brazil and Argentina, these two giants in South America, Paraguay got corrupted completely through this process. And so the institutions in Paraguay are completely uh, uh, corruptible, and that's really the second advantage. The second advantage of Hezbollah has, and Iran has seen in Latin America is the high levels of corruption. You know, while the U.S. tends to run away from corruption, you know, notably so, because, you know, we try to promote the rule of law, Iran, they run towards it. Uh, and they see those corrupt elements as opportunities for them to get into mm. uh, positions of power and political influence. And so they've been able to move in Latin America wow. pretty much at the speed of light. Uh, and, and that, that, the that's an interesting pandemic. thought. I, I just want to uh, highlight that point here, just what you're saying here, that you know, we a lot of our policymakers looked at Latin America and said, "All right, a bunch of dysfunction, corruption, primitive governmental practices there. We don't have much interest. Screw it. We're not going to pay much attention to our neighbors." And Iran says, "Hey, this is the wild, wild west. Let's set up shop." Yes, absolutely. Like here's here's a good example of this. This is a very recent example. So if you look to Latin America, if anyone has been following the region, they know there's this huge, huge public corruption case. It's called Odebrecht, right? It's about a Brazilian multinational company that pre- was, you know, set up with kind of like a construction company that set up projects all throughout the world, particularly in Latin America. And what they essentially did is they set up bribes and all kinds of kickbacks to politicians throughout the region to get these contracts uh, and pretty much dirtied the entire political class of Latin America. I mean, there's 12 cases that the Department of Justice have. I'm sorry, there's several cases the Department of Justice have on 12 countries in Latin America that include the highest levels of government, including former presidents, ministers, and others. So this, this narrative on Odebrecht has been spun as a big corruption narrative, a wave of corruption throughout Latin America. But I have news. It's not corruption. It's most likely intelligence. It's for sure uh, um, uh, extortion, political extortion. And let me explain that. So, you know, for it to be corruption, you have to really look at the numbers. And the Department of Justice has all these numbers. So there, there was a division created within Odebrecht it's called the Division of Structured Operations. That division existed for about 10 years, from 2006 to 2016. For the first five years, yes, it was corruption. They gave kickbacks, they got profits. That's the kind of normal way corruption works. But from 2011 to 2016, they paid out 20 times more bribes than profits, which makes no sense. Like, no no company pays for corruption or pays bribes to lose money. That's absolutely ridiculous. 
So what does that mean? That means that there was another uh, objective. There was another interest in doing this. And when you go to the origins of the Odebrecht case, which you know, was a Brazilian company created in Brazil, it was created, especially this division, this division of structured operations. That division was modeled after a, a, a scheme in a, in a per, certain part of Sao Paulo that was using remittances to push money back to uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. Basically, it was Lebanese businessmen that created that. Uh, that that division within Odebrecht, which you know le- leads one to think that you know perhaps Hezbollah was taking advantage of this uh, scheme to be able to get a- political access and influence throughout the entire region, Latin America. So it's very sophisticated. Uh, But again, like most people don't see it that way. So I I think, again, a a good way to understand the establishment of this problem. uh, Later today, I'm going to have an article out on the budding scandal in Minneapolis among the Somali community. Um, That's obviously a Shia community, uh, you know, with possible ties to Al-Shabaab, where a bunch of daycare centers were signing up people to boost their enrollment. Minnesota has very lavish, a very lavish welfare state. And they were taking in extra childcare funds and embezzling it. And there's now questions whether some of that has gone overseas to Al-Shabaab. And that's even in America. But the hope and understanding would be that, well, in America, the state and federal authorities are really going to be on top of that after the Fox 9 report. But I'm assuming you go to Brazil, you go to Bolivia, you go to Paraguay, you know, and we could go around the map there and you know talk about the different – countries, the governments, and how strong Hezbollah is in each, they're not going to have the will or the means, depending on the case, to even deal with that. No, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, there's, not, there's not many Fox 9 reports that are going to be done in Brazil or Argentina <laughs> or any of these countries about, about this problem. A lot of it's because they're either scared or some of them they just don't have the capabilities. But, you know, you made a really good point, which is, you know, when we talk about Hezbollah, specifically in Congress, there's a lot of discussion about the illicit activity, so they, you know, their involvement in narco-trafficking and money laundering. But there's actually quite a bit of involvement in illicit legal enterprises that at the end of the day, uh, it may be legal in terms of they're not involved in something that's, uh, you know, involved in contraband or anything. But the money, the proceeds still go back to Lebanon and Syria to where they're actually killing uh, innocent civilians, where they're attacking uh, Israeli forces, American forces. And so the ends still stay the same, even if the means change. And the legal illicit is actually in some ways more worrisome. Like, I'll take it back all the way to the Omni attack, the one I was discussing uh, at the top of the show. That attack was financed uh, not so much by illicit uh, financial flows, but by legal commercial trade between Iran and Argentina. At the time, during the 1980s, uh, Argentina had become the top exporter of beef to Iran. I mean, 87% of the consumption of domestic beef in Iran came from Argentina. Mm. That's a normal thing. That's a commercial thing. I mean, everybody loves Argentinian beef, so that, was, sure. that, was, that, that made sense. But what Iran did, they took this opportunity for tremendous commerce, and they exploited it to basically send their IRGC operatives into Argentina to finance the attack. And how they did that was because since Iran's an Islamic country, they have a mandate that says that any kind of uh, products, especially uh, you know beef that goes into the country, has to be certified through the halal process. Oh, wow. That they have to have Islamic certification. The Argentinians know nothing about that, right? So they, they set up halal inspectors and halal inspection companies, certification companies, to Argentina, get them certified by the Iranian embassy, and the Argentinians accept them, and those guys were all double agents. They were working for the IRGC or the MOIS, wow. the Iranian Intelligence Services, and they financed the attack. So that's exploiting commercial trade. Because people ask me sometimes, like, what's wrong with Iran doing business with other countries? I said, nothing wrong with Iran doing business with other countries if they're doing business. But if they're using that business as a gateway to be able to put their, their nefarious operatives in other countries to create terrorist attacks, that's a problem. 
Wow. So, so they're not even trained with that. So let's go around the map a little bit and just uh, see just where where the big trouble spots are. So I, I know we, we talked offline yesterday about the fact that you, know, you could kind of divide up Latin America in terms of the ever-changing governments um, where Iran and Hezbollah have both state ties to, through the government – or institutional ties in the culture based on sometimes the population, the states that have a big Lebanese diaspora. Um, you know, some governments are helpful, some are on the fence. Uh, you know, if you kind of go around the map and just tell us where are the trouble spots where Iran and Hezbollah are wielding their influence and gaining power. Okay, so, that, so in my book, actually, there's something, uh, there's a model that I, that I kind of, conceptual model that I kind of created that. It's called the pattern of penetration. So the book's called Iran's Strategic Penetration of Latin America. And what that title means is that, uh, you know, the term strategic means that they have a plan for the region, right? They've been doing this for a long time. It's not by accident. It's not just a pet project. Penetration means that they're using covert methods to get into uh, many of these countries. And so what this conceptual model does, it kind of layers their penetration in different elements, you know, starting with cultural, because they usually embed themselves into different cultural institutions, use cultural exchange to come into the community move on to diplomatic and economic, and eventually graduate to military. And that's more of a recent phenomenon, the, the, the overt presence of Iranian military, particularly IRGC, but also defense military in, industry types in Latin America is really just happened within the last 10 years. I mean, that didn't happen long, like in the 90s and 90s when the, when the terrorist attacks were happening. And the two countries, I'd say, that really have seen that is Bolivia and Venezuela. Bolivia and Venezuela have completely gone to bed with Iran at the highest political levels. Uh, those countries and their governments have aided and abetted Iran from everything from evading international sanctions to uh, procuring uh, strategic metals and minerals for their WMD programs to, you know, allowing Hezbollah to come into the country and do their, 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 their operations. So I put those two countries at the top of the list, Venezuela and Bolivia. Cuba and Nicaragua are right under them, but they're also countries that are very complicit and very you know, in strategic alliance with Iran. Those four countries, uh, we could look at that kind of like, you know, like the Defense Department has this four plus one framework for national security, right? Iran, North Korea, Russia, and, uh, um, and China, and then the plus one's international terrorism. We could look at that four plus one framework, and there's a four plus one framework in Latin America. It's Cuba, wow. uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Bolivia, and the plus one's transnational organized crime. And that is where Iran comes in. The rest of the, the map, America could be divided into countries that are pretty much co-opted because their institutions are weak and they don't have a lot of capability, mm. to actually countries that are fighting this threat. And the ones that are fighting it, I, I like to highlight Argentina, Peru, uh, Panama, um, Chile. Um, these are countries that have actually gone after Iran on several levels and, and neutralized some of their uh, – and Hezbollah – neutralized some of their advantages. Wow. So Panama – I, I want to start with Panama. You mentioned Panama. Something just struck me. You know, Panama is the gateway. That's that's the um, Central American country that's connected to Colombia, to South America. Um, if you could talk a little bit uh, about the our Syria, America's potential Syria through the Venezuelan migration crisis, and how Iran and Hezbollah tie in, and and what role Pan- we could play by helping Panama stem that tie to ensure they don't come northward because if they come northward that would be through panama then suddenly we have hundreds of thousands of venezuelans at our border dwarfing the you know hondurans the guatemalans and, and el salvadorans but also mixed with hezbollah Leb- you know lebanese 
uh, Iranian, who knows what else from the Middle East, all coming under the guise of refugee status. So can you speak a little bit to the nature of that threat and what we can do with Central American countries to stem that tide? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think that's a very, that's the, that is the question. That's a contemporary question for, for U.S. national security right now in Latin America is what's, what are we going to do about Venezuela? How are we going to stop this tide of refugees, which is pretty much building all across the region? So let, let me start by saying, you know, if I, if I were to describe the Syria uh, crisis, the Syria conflict in one sentence, right, I would describe it as a humanitarian crisis that exacerbated a tremendous amount of refugee outflows, outpouring, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, not to 10 million, with uh, a tremendous amount of Iranian and Russian control and Hezbollah defense along the borders. That is basically the Syria crisis as we sit here today, which is heating up as we speak. That explanation, that definition, that sentence also applies to Venezuela by the letter, by the word, you know. Um, Iran, Russia, Hezbollah are entrenched in Venezuela. They have been for many years. I mean, 75% of all the arms that Russia has sent to Latin America have passed through Venezuela. You know, Hezbollah has gotten a tremendous amount of, of access to the law enforcement and the military apparatus of Venezuela. They've actually shielded them from some of that activity. And obviously, we've been speaking about Iran in the past. So what happens is there's been a kind of a big misunderstanding as to what the Venezuela crisis is. People think it's, at the beginning, people thought it was just a national crisis. You know, a low, you know, authoritative figures going against population, revolt, uprising, and that's it. Then people thought maybe it's a regional crisis. You know, there's you know, all these other regional alliances and this old communist framework from Cuba, and, and that's pretty much what we're facing in Latin America. But if it was just that, then we would see this in other parts of Latin America because Cuba's been around for a lot of, for 50, 60 years, and they, the communist networks have been active for, for just as long. But this is not that. This is much more similar to conflicts we've seen in the Middle East. And the reason we know that is because if you follow Chavez, the, the late dictator, Hugo Chavez, the late dictator of Venezuela, if you follow Hugo Chavez's thinking, his strategy, his, the way he implemented what he called the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, it doesn't resemble Cuba at all. What it resembles is pan-Arab nationalist movements in the Middle East that dominated 21st century politics in that part of the world. And he basically took those concepts and strategies and he implemented them into Venezuela. Um, for example, like the great concept of greater Syria, unify the Arab countries under one identity using natural resources as their power. That's the concept of greater Colombia. That's the, con that's the objective of mm. the uh, Bolivarian Revolution. So what, what, what that means in modern days, that means that the biggest clandestine network in Venezuela isn't the communist network. It's the Arab network, the Arab nationalist network. And what happened in, in the Middle East? Well, the Arab nationalist movement rose and it fell, and that was the dawn of the Iranian Revolution. So what's happening in Latin America? Socialism or 21st century socialism rose and it fell, and that's where Iran's going to advance. And so Iran is positioning itself. They took in the lessons they learned how to take over the Levant in the Middle East, and they're applying that to Latin America, and Venezuela is the gateway. So the refugee crisis is basically nothing more than a push factor by Iran to take the amount of refugees that have been spilling out of Venezuela from about 2 million where it's at now to about 10 million to where it's at in Syria, where it's unsustainable and untenable for Latin America and threatens the United States. That's the strategy. So, so right now they're, they're flowing into Colombia, thousands um, every week. Uh, they're flowing into Brazil. Are there any signs that they're moving north to Panama? There is. Um, well, see, not, Panama is the financial capital of a lot of this stuff. So this is why Panama is important, because Panama actually has probably one of the largest uh, financial relationships with Venezuela. And, and one of the things why, why I mentioned Panama is one of those countries that's helping us is because they recently sanctioned Venezuela 
to be able to like cut off some of those financial flows to weaken the regime. So in that sense, I think you know Panama. There's a lot of money that moves through Panama, but actual migration it actually kicks off mostly a little bit past Panama. It kicks off mostly in Costa Rica, Belize, in in Guatemala, or, or you know Salvador, Honduras, that area, the Northern Triangle. So they 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 take boats and they they get to Colombia and then they take they take these people. It's the same thing that drug traffickers do basically, and then they move them all straight into Honduras, Costa Rica, uh, and, and, and Central America. And from there, the pathways are already illuminated to be able to get to the Mexican border. Um, I'll give you an example. In Guatemala, I'm, I'm sorry, in, let me backtrack a little bit. In April of last year, um, you know, we had, uh, you know, there was all the problems in Syria. The, you know, Trump, I think, lost his 50 tomahawks and Rouhani and got up all up in arms from Iran. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, President Maduro of Venezuela launched what he called Plan Zamora, which is basically a... Uh, an operation to quell the uprising and protests in Venezuela. As he did that, he mobilized all his forces to the border with Colombia. And when he did that, that created the opportunity where 80 Hezbollah operatives passed through the border, went along the northern coast of Colombia, all the way down to a city called Corvenas, and then bounced out. And when they, we lost them from that point, so, and so we reported they went to Central America. Shortly thereafter, uh, the Guatemalan intelligence uh, identified that there had already been a trail of Syrians that had been appearing in Guatemala that, you know, were categor- would be categorized in the U.S. Uh, uh, authorities as special interest aliens yep. that were passing through Guatemala going on into Mexico. So what they found out, what this is, this is a rat line. This is a rat line that moves from Venezuela, cuts through Colombia, goes all the way up into Central America, and then finally gets to the border. And my argument is once it gets to the border, it's almost too late. I mean, it's 50-50 they're going to get in. We got to stop that way before. Way before it gets close. Because because let's take this farther north. Let's take this discussion of, and I want to get back farther south too, if we have time. You know, just the the state level ties, the cultural ties, the religious ties, the demographic ties that Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah has with these countries, with the populations. But you take it up north. So you know, we already established. They have their base of operations in Venezuela in the tri-state border um, with Argentina and Brazil and Paraguay. They they operate um, Bolivia, uh, you know, several other countries there. Then obviously under Ortega's government in Nicaragua, right? I'm, I'm assuming they're they're close with yeah. him as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. El, El Salvador, right? Correct. Salvador, Salvador, the the local government Sanchez Ren, He's been very. Uh, he's kind of been a, a soft member of this alliance that we're discussing. The alliance has a name. It's called the Bolivarian Alliance, the ALBA, as they call themselves. Uh, and so, El Salvador has become like a kind of soft member. They they, they joined late, I think, because the uh, the current president of Salvador didn't win his election until about 2009 or 10, or maybe later. Actually, no, more like 2011 or 12. But anyhow. He was one of the later editions. But, uh, yeah, as you move north, so essentially that's what I think you were talking about at the opening of the show, which is there's these all these kind of networks and all these pathways that have been converging over time. So in the past, you know, the conventional wisdom in Washington was that drug traffickers aren't going to really help terrorists because they have different motivations and they have different objectives. You know, one is motivated by greed and the other is motivated by God. So they're like, they're not, they don't have the same interests. That's proven to be empirically false. <laughs> uh, um, the, the Department of Defense study, actually the Counterterrorism Center, Department of Defense, did a recent empirical analysis of 2,800, a sample of 2,800 known criminals and terrorists in their databases, and 98% of them were connected. And where they're connected is they're connected through what's called the EPS, 
the fixers, facilitators, and the financiers. These are folks that are living in countries that don't really care about your motivations or don't care about yep. why you're doing what you're doing. They just need to, you know, they want money. They want to get by. They want to survive. And they'll, they, they manage local networks and territory to be able to move things. And they could be anything. It could be drugs. It could be weapons. It could be people, terrorists. And so what happens is these networks have converged, and they're using the most optimal methods and routes to be able to bypass local authorities and get to the border and then, and, and then cross it. So when people look at the numbers, they want to see that big volume. They want to see, you know, I don't know, uh, tens of thousands of Muslims kind of running across the border. It doesn't work that way, you know? What they, and they're very sophisticated how they do it. They ops test things. They, they send some fake type uh, uh, migrants to kind of get caught and see how the authorities react, and they send the other people. It's, it's very sophisticated cross-border operations. It's the same thing they do in Afghanistan when they move between Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq, when they move between Iran and, Iraq and, uh, and, Iran and Syria. Uh, and Iran is kind of the master of cross-border operations, if you ask me. Wow. They have a tremendous amount of transportation capabilities. So they've taken that know-how. You know, uh, and they've put, implemented it into Mexico, and and you know the cartels have learned a lot actually about how to enhance their operations through this knowledge. And, and that and that's the key. So so yeah, I mean now as you get farther north, you get more into where at least I know a little bit of what I'm talking about. And we had Brandon Judd, the head of the Border Patrol Union, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and one of the points he made is that you know obviously nobody crosses without a smuggler and the smuggling routes are controlled by the drug cartels not the central mexican government um you know and there's four or five different cartels roughly that control different areas of the american southwest border now what they'll often do is what he said is they'll they'll, they'll shove this clunky caravan uh, let's just say that for a minute they're innocuous a hundred or so uh, bogus asylum seekers that will really tie up the border agents, and there aren't too many at any given moment in a sector or patrolling. So they're tied up with changing diapers, seeking medical attention, processing them. And that is where, again, because the migration is not random. It's orchestrated Mm -hmm. by the drug cartels. So that's where they send in under the diversion the – high-value targets, they could be MS-13, they could be a big delivery of fentanyl heroin, but they could also be SIAs. And absolutely, and that's, I think the key word in what you said is diversion. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of diversionary tactics that are used, uh, not just in Latin America. I mean, really, if you study the way Iran has moved people into Afghanistan and Iraq, where our U.S. military is completely uh, prominent in, the, in those regions and how they got past them is through diversionary tactics and that that you know where we have less of controls in maybe in our southwest border but even in the in Mexico uh, they use a lot of that type of capability to kind of get past uh, some of these authorities. There was a big prominent case and this goes a little bit back, but it was I think 2011 or 12 where there was a prominent imam from San Francisco um, named Rafik Laboon who was arrested in Merida, Mexico because he was managing a human smuggling network that was taking individuals from, Belize, from, from the Middle East, mainly Lebanon, giving them Belizean documents, passports, birth certificates, driver's license, and then running them across the border through Tijuana into California all the way up to San Francisco. He was arrested. He was extradited. And he's now under U.S. custody. But I mean, he's just one example. And the way they got through all that is that, they, that the mass flow of the migration happened right before the unaccompanied minors uh, situation and so what they were doing, they were diverting attention to the unaccompanied minors, which was going to the was more going to the Texas border, and they passed it to Tijuana. You know? 
Oh no! It, um, it, well, and, and speaking of the Texas border, that, that's what I wanted to get to. Uh, my audience is now familiar. We've talked a lot on about this because we focused a lot on the drug crisis and how government is misdiagnosing it. Um, won't even recognize the nature of the trends, the data, what it is, what it isn't. Um, you know, with a 400, 600% spike in overdoses since 2013 has nothing to do with Oxycontin and prescriptions. They've been going down. Prescriptions are, have been choked off for better, for worse, depending on your opinion in the medical community. But it is what it is. It's all the illicit drugs coming circa the UAC crisis, 2013, 2015. And you mentioned a lot of it coming through Texas. So w- where I really start on this, and I told you this, um, is where I wanted to get to the Zetas cartel. Th- there has been more reports recently of SIAs, mainly from Bangladesh and Syria, coming in, particularly almost all of them, through Laredo. Laredo lock, stock, and barrel is controlled by the Zetas, not Sinaloa yeah. or the Gulf or Juarez cartels. Um, it, that, that, that is the Zetas regarded as the most brutal tactics. Um, they have Iranian IEDs that have been reported to have been used in their territory against other drug cartels or civilians. And we're seeing them come in now through that area. There's been several hundred interdictions this fiscal year. You can imagine how many how many we didn't catch. Um Concurrently, we're seeing a spike like we've never seen before in cocaine. Um, a lot of the drug crisis, the focus was on heroin and then um, the heroin laced with fentanyl, which was almost done exclusively by their rival, the Sinaloa cartel. Now we're seeing the cocaine, which is mainly the product of Zetas, being spiked with fentanyl. Um, my city of Baltimore has seen a tripling of cocaine overdose deaths the past two years. And you know, the first thing that goes off in my mind is, wait a minute. The Zetas have some sort of established connection with Hezbollah, and it's precisely in their territory that we're seeing the SIAs come in. To me, my concern is, oh my gosh, between that and the spike in the cocaine trade, you know, uh, Secretary Nielsen, DHS Secretary, just said yesterday the drug cartels make $500,000 off of um, – the human smuggling and say how much the drug smuggling, that's a lot more. You could imagine with a drug crisis going bonkers, his is involved in that. Do you think there's some sort of relationship there? And could you speak a little bit to our audience about the Juma case and the connection yeah, with the yeah. Zetas? Yeah, yeah. The connection with those Zetas and, and Hezbollah particularly is a as well established connection as well known to the DEA, you know, FBI and other, other US law enforcement intelligence. Um, the Juma case, which you mentioned, is a very high-profile case. It was, I think, indicted in 2011, uh, and it was announced by the Department of Justice, where you had a Lebanese-Colombian, Ayman Juma, who was basically trafficking multi-million shipments of cocaine from Latin America, primarily Mexico, to uh, Lebanon. And, and, and or, he was actually trafficking it to Africa, the cocaine to Africa, and then using a used car uh, racket uh, scheme to essentially get the, launder the money and get the illicit proceeds and sending that to Lebanon. Uh, we're talking about multi-million dollars, multi-ton shipments of, uh, of cocaine. So the Ayman Juma, and he managed a network. I mean, he's, he's the individual, but he has tremendous amount I mean, Like his family itself is quite a network, cousins and brothers and sisters. And so his, the, their family was located all throughout uh, Central America and South America, bleeding into Venezuela, Panama, and all these countries. And they were basically coming into the United States. I mean, there was a series of used car dealerships in the United States that were selling used cars and didn't realize they were doing that on behalf of Hezbollah. Uh, and so this this became a very prominent case, and he, and he was arrested. It kind of broke the, the what some people considered a myth that Hitler was working with 
Hezbollah because he was clearly working on behalf of Los Cetas in Mexico. And one of the reasons why I think Los Cetas has been stood out, and one of these maybe Hezbollah has created a bigger strategic relationship with that cartel in particular, is you got to think of what Los Cetas is, right? Los Cetas was in, came from the Mexican military. Um, and so they already had uh, capabilities in transportation. Obviously, they knew how to handle weapons. They, they were a bit more involved than other cartels. Well, the Sinaloa cartel, and I think the new ones, La, La, uh, was it Nueva Generaciones, uh, the, the the new cartels they have a bigger market share perhaps in certain drug industry. Yeah. Um, they don't have the ability uh, to do transportation the way and logistics the way the set is, and that that allowed them to grow tremendously fast and then also to move all the way up into the wow. border. And Hezbollah and what Hezbollah wants more than anything, I mean, they, they don't mind the money. They definitely want the money. They don't want to underplay that. But they want the ability to move things. They want transportation. That's what they really need. They need to be able to get things quickly uh, to, to, to their points of destination. And so Tetas was much better at that, I would say, than many of the other cartels. And so that's kind of why they, I, I believe, that they moved in, in that direction. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the Tetas is still there. They're, they're, they're doing their thing. And, and I think the, the, the thing that I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around nowadays since I've been looking at this for such a long time you know, I, I, I sit here in Washington, so I like, try to look at the big policy implications on the strategic level. So when I talk to the policymakers, I can give them some insight. And what I like to know is if this is just merely Hezbollah getting money for their operations in Lebanon and maybe their operations even in Latin America and Syria, or is this more of a strategic play on behalf of Iran to basically use narco-trafficking as a destabilizing element yes. to basically create divisions all throughout the region and including the United States? which weakens our, the fabric of our society and allows an opportunity for further aggression and attacks. Because my, my calculation is that the further we intensify, you know, um, our the conflict in Syria, by extension, uh, you know, we have a increasingly conflict with Iran over the nuclear program or whatever. And this is something that Iran is provoking. Iran is driving the conflict with the United States and the West. The further Iran drives that conflict, they more than we're going to mobilize Latin America because they know that that's their best weapon. That is that, the that's their best weapon. I, I mean, I, I yeah. put myself in their shoes, and they do things logically to advance their interests, unlike our government. Um, you know, if, if you think of a good strategic play for them, they're likely doing it. And if I put myself in their shoes, I understand. First of all, I mean, in the asymmetrical warfare you talk about a lot, they understand our politics and they understand what is sacred in in our body politic and our cultural institutions, and they know immigration is sacred, and they know that anything that that is tied up in migration, our government will not deal with. They, they, they will refuse to do what, uh, what, what our government would typically do to address a, a security threat if it wouldn't be tied up in immigration. They'll ignore it. And, and you know, again, you see it on the drug crisis, too, because it's too tied up in the migration, they are not trying to deal with it, and they're trying to blame uh, you know, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of misinformation, and I'm no defender of pharmaceutical companies, but it just it has nothing to do with that because if you would actually wake up, you say, holy crap, we need to shut down the border. We need to go after sanctuary cities. Um, we need to go after the drug cartels. We need to shut down any magnet of amnesty because it's particularly the young teenagers that are the MS-13 recruits, the drug mules, um, the diversions. I mean, that's how they – that's why we had the – particularly the young crisis and the growth of MS-13. But I look at this and I wonder if there's another dimension. If I'm Iran, I say, look, the Israelis really screwed us up pretty bad. Trump screwed us up. We're, we're on the ropes with the Iran deal now. Our economy is going to go in the tank. Israel just just uh, owned us in Syria. Um, you know, I would just ratchet up my base. 
I want to, again, keep this north. So you mentioned yeah. something interesting about the Zetas and the transportation. We're trying to migrate. How do they get – they have their base in Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, lots of other countries there that cooperate, Bolivia, Ecuador. Um, and then we're going to – I want to get to Peru later. Um, we need to talk, talk about the trial there. But you go to Mexico and the Zetas – I look at a DEA map of drug cartel control. So you have the Zetas controlling the northern border with Texas around the Laredo area. But then also they control the Chiapas area right at the southern border with Guatemala. Um, Is this true that there have been tens of thousands of Lebanese and Syrian immigrants more recently than, let's say, South America, moving to the Chiapas area where you have – I forget the name of the city that they say is, is becoming more Muslim, the Muslim converts. Is, is there – they're there? Well, so it's funny. So we, we got a question – I got a question from uh, some of my colleagues in the Department of Defense uh, many years ago, it's about four or five years ago, uh, because there was, you know, they wanted to know is there any conversions happening in Latin America? Is there mass conversions to Islam? On behalf of Latins in, in, in down south, and, and the truth is, the truth is no. There's not mass conversions to Islam in Latin America. I mean, not, nothing at the level of Christianity, evangelicalism, or anything like that, or even or other religions, except for a few pocketed regions. Uh, in, 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 in one of those was Chiapas. Chiapas is the, was one of the few places where we saw conversions on a scale of, on a ratio of five to one. So, like for every five people that go into a mosque convert, you know, one of them comes out completely converted, which is actually high. Mm. for uh, <laughs> Latin America uh, um, um, and actually anywhere really. Um, and so they, they were, uh, they were converting and they were not just converting any, you know, Jewish modes. I mean, there was plenty of those too, but they were converting some individuals that had political connections, individuals that were tied to the mayor's office uh, and one of some of these cities. And, and, and so there was, there was a concern that there was an Islamization happening in, in Chiapas. And what was interesting about that, um, you know, there's a famous kind of like a narco trafficker then in Comandante Marcos, and he stated this, and, and basically, like, you know, what was interesting in the Chiapas is they weren't all Sunni, and they weren't even majority Sunni. A lot of them were Shia. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and that was weird because, you know, you don't see, like, the Shia usually in Latin America are very recluse, and they kind of stick to their own. But in this case, they were actually proselytizing at a very rapid rate. So th- it did become a concern in terms of in terms of that in Chiapas, Mexico, and I think mo- mostly to the Guatemalans. The Guatemalans were looking at this quite a bit, and they were wondering, because I mean, that border bleeds right into their indigenous communities. I mean, you know, back in the, you know, Aztec or Mayan, whatever days, I mean, this was all one, this wasn't divided country. Sure. It was all the same, same place. So their communities communicate quite a bit. And, um, you know, even though there's a border there, that, that's, you know, that doesn't mean that they recognize it so much. <laughs> and they, they, they move back freely across that border uh, quite a bit. And so the Guatemalans were worried that that's going to migrate further south and, and start to contaminate some of their indigenous communities. So that was a very real thing. But Dan, if you let me ask you, I just want to make one point on the on the big picture, which you raised in the beginning, like why this is maybe Iran's best weapon, right? Um, and one thing I want to say is, if, if you think about it from Iran's perspective, and I think that's you know that's what you're doing, I think it's good. You know, you look to your right, you see you know Afghanistan, right? So you see U.S. forces for you know going on the longest war in the history of the United States and all that. You look to your left, you see Iraq, and you see you know the, the elements of U.S. forces, particularly in the south and in the Kurdish area. And, and so you kind of realize that there's a tremendous geographic disadvantage. This is what the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine was all about, right? This is, you know, we have oceans separating us from other parts of the world so that we don't have to worry about some of these conflicts. Well, Iran realized that they have to diminish that disadvantage. If they want to really intensify negotiations, intensify their power hegemon in the Middle East, that they have to be able to credibly threaten the United States. And so in that sense, you know, they can't send carriers to the Caribbean or anything like that, like, 
you know, what sure. a conventional force would do. So they, what they do is they set up networks, and they have networks of mosques and culture centers on the legal side, I say on the cultural side. They have networks of illicit activity with, through Hezbollah on, 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 the, on the drug trafficking side. And, then they have, and now they have networks with governments. And, and what I call it, I call them surrogate states. The mm-hmm. governments that now do the work of Iran for Iran without, know, without anyone really knowing that it's, that it's Iran doing it, you know? Um, and, and, and in Mexico, I would say the surrogate state is really the drug cartels. That, but I mean, it, the thing with Mexico is Mexico is a, a federalist country. So, like, you know, while the Mexican national government has some levels of control, it doesn't control the entire country because they're controlled by states. You know, and there's certain states where the drug traffickers bleed into the local politicians, and that's where you know Hezbollah take, and Iran take advantage. Wow, I mean, because I mean, to me, that's that's my end game of the focus. I think there, I mean, we shouldn't want to. Give them any advantage in terms of the drug trafficking and the funding that in itself is a kill shot, even if they never had any intention of smuggling operatives and terrorists into our country to engage in a subversion and be eventually, um, you know, downright terrorist attacks. But the fact that you have that, that steady line we traced up through. Guatemala going to the the immediate border is Zetas territory. The northern border with Texas is Zetas territory. They have the established ties with the Zetas. To me, it makes a lot of sense working backwards that what we're seeing now, and this is my concern, again, Iran really wants to get the better of us now. We've really humiliated them along with Israel. Um, you have the growing drug crisis. Uh, you have, obviously, the SIAs coming in. And to me, it makes sense that the Zetas would give them somewhat of a cultural base, a strategic base, um, tied in maybe with some of their politicians. They give them weapons and training. In return, the Zetas give them, uh, you know, a obviously access possibly to the cocaine market. I'm not 100% sure about that. I know the. Um, Hezbollah has helped them with access to their West Africa market, so you know it could very well be they're involved in this boosting of the cocaine market, and then obviously the terrorists. So let me ask you this question: Why you and I both know there's Hezbollah operatives in this country? I mean, it's that that's obvious. We saw yeah. that with the Juma case. Yeah, um, yeah Dearborn, Michigan, North Carolina. Yeah, obviously where you have big Lebanese Shia populations. Not that they're all involved in it, but like just like with Latin America, um, where you do have that, you're that's where they're gonna they're gonna live. And you know, why haven't they set off a suitcase bomb yet? Why haven't they done? It's such an easy vulnerability. Well, they're not. They're not stupid. I mean, they're, they're not trying to uh, just randomly attack. They're not ISIS, right? They're not just randomly trying to attack uh, soft targets and create hysteria. I mean, they're strategic. They're playing the long, long game and all this. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you mentioned like, you know, the you know the presence of the United States and you know, and you can go to places like Dearborn, Michigan, and you know, certain certain kinds of North Carolina places that you wouldn't expect. Not not just L.A. and New York, right? But um, I mean, they work like a mafia, really. You know, uh, like you know, like the, the, you know, not every person involved in the Italian community in, in in New York was involved with the Italian mob, but there was definitely penetrated that community. Sure. Same with the Irish and, and all that. Mexicans uh, do the same thing. So the Lebanese are no different in that sense, and they're playing the long game. And the long game is not calculated so much just on Lebanon or on Hezbollah. The the, the long game is calculated on Iran because we can't. That's where we can't divorce the two. We cannot divorce. Hezbollah's strategic actions globally from Iran's global ambition. I, I don't Iran mean to cut you, really you off here. Before I forget, yeah. is there, are there signs of Iranian migration? Not not just a diplomatic, you know, going back and forth to the embassies, but has there also been Iranian migration and cultural ties in addition to the Lebanese? 
Yes. Um, I mean, historically, yes. The Amia case was involved with Iranians that were working with the Lebanese and the Syrians and basically orchestrating that attack. But there has been uh, high-level technical and academic Iranian migrants coming to Latin America, particularly into the universities, and involved in you know exchange technical exchange programs. And we don't really know what they do, to be honest. Um, <laughs> at least I don't. Um, but they're, they're individuals that uh, you know, have basically kind of a unique profile to do all kinds of uh, different activities if they were to do something for the Iranian government. Like they have mathematics, engineering, uh, space, uh, like these high-end technical activities that, if they, you know, a lot of them, they really wanted to earn money. They would go to other parts of the world, but they go to Latin America. They go to Bolivia, for example, which is, you know, if you want to make money, that's not really your top destination in the world, uh, much less Venezuela. I, mean, Venezuela. I don't think anyone really is making any money in Venezuela. So uh, it, it's unusual migration pattern. I think what the Canadians have called this irregular migration. And they noticed it too, that one of the reasons I got into this uh, aspect of the migration stuff was actually through my work in Canada, where I, I met with the Canadian Parliament and the Canadian authorities, uh, CSIS, their intelligence services up there, uh, and the Royal uh, Canadian Police. And what they noticed was there was a migration of Iranian, irregular migration of Iranians coming into Canada, but using what they call prior embarkation points. And the, the, the highest prior embarkation points at the time were Venezuela and Mexico. You know? So they were coming from Iran. They were taking a long way to Canada. They were going from Iran to Europe, to Venezuela, Mexico, and then into uh, Canada. And what they looked at them is that their applications didn't make sense. You see, they, they literally told me that some of these uh, Iranians come in and, 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 you know, they completely, like they say they're an academic, but they have no academic profile. Like they have no degree they don't know the knowledge of the topic and so they they were concerned about this kind of thing and that's what kicked it off for me i, I started hearing about that and i was like huh they're going into mexico and as well so i kind of went down there and started looking at it. this is you know close to seven eight years ago that i started looking at it and, and, and the migration thing is worrisome because let me just put it back to venezuela a little bit one of the concerns that i forgot to mention on venezuela is that the fact that the, the venezuelan government has issued documentation to all these folks so this isn't no longer just like you know someone having a fake ID and moving around the region or a fake passport. They have a state-issued, legitimized passport that's backed up by that government, um, and not just a passport, but they have you know birth certificate, uh, property records, uh, driver's license, everything. They have a custody of records that allows them to say with some sort of legitimacy, "I am a Venezuelan." even though they never stepped foot in Venezuela until they actually moved to the region. Wait, 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 can you trace this for me from the Middle East? Because I I really want to get people to understand the threat that when you see an increase in SIAs, and I'm going to ask Attorney General Sessions this, he's going to be on the show tomorrow, Um, Mm -hmm. they're, they're coming through at Laredo now. What I've seen is that even if they're not Shias, if they're, let's say, Sunnis, they're from Bangladesh, they go to Lebanon, where they have the ties with Venezuela, and they get some sort of Latin American countries' documentation, maybe Venezuela's, and they fly to Brazil, which also has a large base of operations for Hezbollah, and that's how they make their way north. Well, there's two, there's two, you've got, you got to categorize this into two different uh, groups, right? So one is what you're talking about, the, SI, the typical SIA quarter that is, is what you described. A lot of those folks don't get, they get visas, and they don't get necessarily, you know, a complete uh, dual identity. They actually come whatever identity they say, but they say, like, the reason we're able to register them as a Bangladeshi or a Syrian or Somalian is because we have some level of uh, insight into that's their, uh, authentic, that's their authentic identity. What I'm talking about is a different group. I'm talking about a group of folks that you won't be able to recognize because they're Venezuelan, quote-unquote. What the SIAs don't count, like among the special interest aliens that are categorized, I mean, there's 30-something countries on that list. Uh, Venezuela's not on that list. You know? So they wouldn't count as SIAs. These are Venezuelan migrants. 
And, and a lot of these Venezuelan migrants are going to be coming out as refugees because they're going to have Venezuelan paperwork. Holy smokes. Have, uh, wait a yeah, minute. Wait and, a minute. And, and, so and, you're telling me you could have Muhammad, who's really man- manual or listed as manual. Yeah. But on... you do have that. I mean, you absolutely have that. You have, So, you know, CNN actually ran a documentary about this. You know, we helped CNN on, on, on a story that they put out, which involved a whistleblower, a Venezuelan official in Iraq. He was working at the Venezuelan consulate in Iraq. He blew the whistle on a lot of this stuff, and he showed documentation. He showed a Manuel, and then he, he has a birth certificate from Iraq. And he, 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 his name is Mohammed, for example. That's his real name, but let's just use that case. And then he showed how the Venezuelans completely recreated his identity. You know? um, and, and that's a concern because there's no database in the world that's going to be able to catch that. Wow. That takes a tremendous amount of counterintelligence, new intelligence uh, uh, operations to be able to understand. You can sniff these guys out. I mean, like if they're, and then we've heard of cases like this, they're, they're coming across the border and you they don't speak Spanish very well, you can maybe get them that way. But you have to have the abilities and the presence to do it. One of the things I'm worried about with humanitarian assistance and refugee uh, programs for Venezuela that you know the U.S. is starting to, to get involved with is that we're not going to do that type of assistance with the level of counterintelligence we need to understand that they're all refugees. It's the same conversation we had in Syria. And so as these Venezuelans start pouring out, you know, and, and, and they move into Colombia and then later in the Panama Central America, like we aren't going to be able to know who exactly they all are. And that to me is worrisome because the, the, the heavy hitters that Iran's using, I believe, come through that corridor. And, and just to put an exclamation mark on this, it's more than just conjecture. Could you explain who the vice president of Venezuela is? Yeah, so the best vice president of Venezuela is a gentleman named Tarek El Aysami, very Venezuelan name, um, <laughs> an, indiv- an individual who is from you know Syrian Lebanese parents, and, and an individual who's been um, sanctioned by the Department of Treasury for being uh, a narcotics trafficker or a money launderer. So he's some, he's definitely someone that you know is on the eyes of the U.S. authorities and everyone kind of knows. But he's a bit of a mystery in, in some sense, too, because if you follow his family and kind of the family lineage, he has a tremendous amount of power, not in Venezuela. I mean, he does, obviously, he's the vice president, but tremendous amount of power in Syria. His family was one of the founders of the Ba'athist movement that put Haitz Faz al-Assad into power, the father of Bashar. Uh, his wow. family was involved in the Arab revolt of the early 20th century. I mean, his family has been involved in the conflict in the Middle East. You know, before Hezbollah was even a uh, thought, right? The Hezbollah, you got to remember, Hezbollah morphed out of the Lebanese Civil War, and before the Lebanese Civil War, there was the uh, the, the socialist movements that were dominating this part of uh, the Middle East, and, and you know, the Palestinian socialist movement, the Lebanese, the Syrian socialist party, and so his family comes core to all that all that stuff. This is why I was telling you that Chavez, when his Chavez's power came from the Middle East. I mean, he was financed more by Gaddafi than than Castro. He was empowered more by Iran than Cuba. I mean, he, mm. his, 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 ability, his abilities to basically create conflict where we've never seen in Latin America came because he studied, mentored, and, and financed by the Middle Eastern networks. And that's why they, they, they exported that conflict to, to the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, j- just to come full circle, and I know, uh, you know, you, you got to go soon. Uh, we've taken a lot of time here. Um, it's kind, kind of a punchline and some solutions here. Obviously, you know, everything we need to do on border security, interior security, in terms of immigration policy, we've talked about that for years. It's a no-brainer. But in terms of diplomacy, possibly even military, especially, you know, the 7th uh, Special Forces, we are so involved in the Middle East. 
I mean, any little bit of uh, threat. Well, the Iranians might threaten us in Yemen because the Houthis, even though we're fighting Al-Qaeda and they're fighting Al-Qaeda too, but we're fighting them. Um, Syria, we have the same thing. Iraq, the same thing. We're fighting Iran, but then we're helping the Baghdad government, which just elected a bunch of pro-Iranian dudes to the parliament. Um, (laughs) Afghanistan, who were just chasing our tail there. I mean, but we've spent trillions of dollars and lost, you know, thousands of people. I know you served in the theater. Um, isn't it time by a factor of 10 million to what we do in the Middle East to have a Monroe doctrine and use every intelligence asset, diplomatic tool of statecraft, and even our military to use a carrot and stick approach country by country to help those that are with us? Get those off the fence to be with us and isolate Venezuela, the government of Bolivia, and some of the troublemakers. No, yes, absolutely. Um, Trump has an opportunity. President Trump has an opportunity here in Latin America. Where, I mean, frankly, it's not by U.S. anything U.S. action or U.S. design. I mean, there's there's been a wave of political trends that have gone in Latin America that have favored the United States. More capitalist, pro-U.S. presidents and other politicians have been able to uh, rise to power in the region. So there's a you know, tremendous opportunity for President Trump to take Latin America seriously and to basically uh, argue to his fellow counterparts in Latin America that they are involved in a global struggle struggle against extremism, Islamic extremism, communist extremism, whatever you want to look at it. Um, There's basically foreign powers that are manipulating circumstances around the world, North Korea, Ukraine, Syria, Venezuela, that are using these as proxy conflicts to destabilize regions and attack, obviously, the United States. He has to make that argument because the Latins aren't seeing it. The Latins aren't going to. The Latins are going to follow. They're not going to lead on this issue. Sure. And so it really makes it makes incumbent for President Trump to come down and 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 to, and to make the argument. And the consequences of not doing that are high. I mean, I was involved in some meetings with you know some U.S. officials. Uh, you know, it was last year when the Venezuela was intensifying, and you know our U.S. intelligence is collecting what they are. And obviously, I don't know what they, they see, but they see more than me. I know that. And you know, some of them mentioned that if if President Trump's not careful, Venezuela could be his Iraq. You know, Venezuela could get so bad that we're going to have to figure out we're going to send troops to, to, to quell the situation over there. And, you know, we're getting bodies flushed down in another conflict that we have really no clear winners. And that's exactly. what we have to avoid. We have to avoid that situation. If we get to that situation, it's a lose-lose scenario. We have to neutralize it. And here's the good news. The good news is I believe we're like on the fifth or sixth inning on this. On this. I think Iran's advancing pretty quickly, but they're not completely ready to do everything that they want to do. And, and if we apply more resources, uh, not just financial, but human capital resources to Latin America, I think we're going to quell this threat and push the fight back to the Middle East, because that's where the Iranians don't want to fight. They don't want to fight around their neighborhood because they they don't like that. They, they like to push it out into proxy conflicts in Syria, push it out into proxy conflicts in Venezuela, and, and, and we have to stop them from doing that. So I think this is a golden opportunity for President Trump. It's just uh, incumbent as whether they see it as clearly, perhaps as I do, or other folks uh, that have worked on this issue, um, which is, you know, obviously I think people like you are, are bringing more attention to it, which is why it's so important. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because, you know, I was ignorant to this. Again, I follow European elections, Middle East elections, but I don't really yeah. follow Latin American elections. Like, And, and I, I know this from most of my colleagues in, in this business or, or my friends in Congress. Uh, they're, they're not aware of this, and we know the anti-American sentiment in, in Latin America. We know the um, kind of, the, like you said, the Alba-Bolivian alliance there from Chavez and, and Castro. But then what we don't realize, like you said, is that the last couple years between Argentina, Chile, Paraguay um, – um, help me here, Peru. I mean, there's some yeah. some countries where where the the governments have changed over, and 
you know, but like you said, they're going to follow all things equal. They don't want, they're not pro Islam, pro Iran, um, pro Hezbollah, but they're very strong in a lot of those populations and the institutions. And they don't want to take off America, but they don't want to take off Iran either. And if we don't make a strong carrot and stick approach, they're going to languish. No, absolutely. And like, take Argentina, for example. I mean, we have a pro-U.S. president, President Macri's actually, I think, friends with President Trump. They, they, they have good, good, good relations. The, US, the Argentinians, they travel more to the United States. And I know pretty much every other country, they're always here, you know, trying to negotiate bilateral deals. But, and, and they take a leadership on the world stage. And they're heading the G20. They're heading the Financial Action Task Force. They're not heading the Counterterrorism Committee of the OAS. So they're an important country. But, but they've also were attacked by Iran and Hezbollah multiple times. And they know the consequences of fighting that fight. And they don't want to fight that fight unless they know they're going to win, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and, and so they, they want to make sure that U.S. and other countries are backing them up before they take on this monumental challenge because Iran is a formidable player. And I think that's the part that our U.S. officials need to recognize, that Iran has gained leverage in Latin America and in some cases even greater than the United States. In Bolivia, for instance, they have better leverage in Bolivia than the United States. They can do more in Bolivia than we can. You know, but that's not the case in all these countries. And so we have to take away some of that space from them before. Because if they get Mexico, it's game over. It's game over. And yeah. I think that's, that's, that's what we're worried about. You know, if they get Mexico, because uh, arguably they're entrenched in Brazil and Argentina, which is the two other biggest countries in Latin America. But if they get Mexico, we're in a world of hurt. Now, you know, some of you especially saying, oh, it's impossible. But, you know, everything's impossible until it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, I love it. Yeah. You know, but, it, it's just they, they have every reason possible. to care about, oh, let's find allies in Syria to get involved in the 10-way civil war. But nobody's thinking of who we could harness help um, as allies in Latin America. And, and um, like you said, they are there. Uh, I, I, gosh, I, I, we're really out of time, but I, I, so many more things. There's one more thing. If you could yeah. just give us an update on Argentina, the AMIA bombing. So you had this prosecutor, Nisman, who was um, – killed, I guess, presumably by Hezbollah a couple years ago, right before he was about to release the findings of his investigation implicating the Kirchner government that was the former regime um, in Argentina with her connections to Iran and covering up um, their role in the the bombing in 1994. But now, like you said, there's a friendly pro-American government there, Macri. What has changed there? What does that investigation stand so, uh, well, the investigation is advanced to the point that they've actually ruled it a murder, which sounds like they want stuff and took a year to do. Uh, they've also identified some potential suspects, all local folks uh, that were involved in perhaps a conspiracy. And they've also uh, basically created charges. So, what leads on one of his last cases before he died was he presented a, what was called a criminal complaint against his president at the time, Christina Kirchner, and he basically uh, uh, was accusing her of treason to negotiating a deal with the Iranians to whitewash their involvement in the army attack of 94. So that uh, case, which had gotten shut down under the previous government, has been reopened. So the former president is actually is, is going to be facing trial and could be, potentially be indicted for, for treason in that country. So that uh, so they've advanced on some level. Uh, obviously, they haven't got to any conclusion on this, but you know, I wrote a report in uh, 2016. It's called After Nisman, which you can one can find on our website. And what the basically the premise of that report was that while we're all trying to figure out who, you know who killed Nisman, which is really difficult to do, I think that's not the only question. The question is who benefited from his death, mm. and Iran undoubtedly benefited the most from Nisman's death, more than the Argentine government, the former Argentine government, more than Christina Kirchner. And why? Because at the time that Nisman died, in January 2015 was one of the most intense times of the nuclear negotiations with Iran and the P5 plus one for the nuclear deal. 
And what happened is Nisman was escalating his aggression to basically take the Amir case and his case against Christina that he just presented on treason and take that to the United Nations Security Council. That was his plan. Ah. He was going to take that to the United Nations Security Council and he was going to demand that the Iranians respond to that attack, similar to how they, you know, they, they, they arbitrated the Lockerbie bombing in Scotland. They used a third-party country, a UN member, because he was taking the advantage that Iran's trying to tell the world that they're legitimate, that they're transparent, and that they're not hiding anything. It so all gets back to the Iran deal. Yeah, so he said, if you're not hiding anything, then tell us what you did in the army bombing. Tell us what happened, you know? And that was his strategy. And because he was ratcheting it up at a time when Iran was really trying to, uh, you know, get, get, get the international legitimacy, he disappeared. Um, and so we don't know who killed him, but we know who benefited from his death. And that was the point of that report. And I think that's, that's where a lot of these investigations. And if you look at, like, one question, if you look at why the army bombing took place, why did the Israeli bombing, the, the bombing of the embassy of Israel happen in, in Argentina, it's all nuclear-related. That according to the Argentine prosecutor, the, the dead Argentine prosecutor, Bertrand Eastman, he said that Argentina and Iran had tremendous amount of nuclear cooperation throughout the 80s, and then they canceled it in the 90s after Argentina signed the non-proliferation treaty and started to work with the U.S. And because they canceled their agreements with the nuclear agreements with Iran, Iran bombed them. And, and so he said, there's some there's, there's something that the Iranians have been going after in Argentina's nuclear program, which is only one of two nuclear powers in Latin America. Um, that they've been after for 30 years. And, and, and Nisman was getting closer to that. Wow. That that really, I'm just like stunned that you said that because what I know from is the Politico expose we, we cited here um, last week that came out in December, how the Obama administration canceled Operation, Operation Cassandra, which was a DA operation to go after and monitor and prosecute um, Hezbollah criminals in Latin America. And that was specifically terminated as part of Obama's, I guess you'd say, off-the-record side deals with Iran to grease the skids for the whole agreement. So that really makes sense that they so badly wanted to stifle any truth about their operation in Latin America, particularly in advance of the nuclear deal. Yeah, there was an article that came out through a prominent Brazilian magazine called Veja, which is very, you know, the Time magazine of Brazil, that came out and basically said that Chavez had a secret discussion with Christina Kirchner in, in Argentina, and they basically, it was a discussion that was uh, done on behalf of uh, Ahmadinejad from Iran, who went to Chavez and said, we need help, we need access to Argentina's nuclear program, you have the contact and the leverage, this is life or death for us. And Chavez said, I'll take care of it. Uh, and that's how they got into Argentina again. Because they had been, they they withdrew from Argentina after the bombing. They they didn't have a lot of political space to operate. Then. And the ironic thing is, Christina Kirchner used to be a very harsh defender of the Jewish community and, and an ardent, like you know, a promoter of the Omnia case. But she she quit in about mm. 2007, and then all of a sudden she was you know working with the Iranians, which didn't make sense, you know. Um, but so so there's been suspicion of all around a triangle between Venezuela, Argentina, and Iran particularly as it relates to getting access to Argentina's nuclear program, particularly the heavy water reactor in uh, Tucha, which is very modeled after the heavy water reactor in Iraq, Iraq, Iraq yeah. and Iran. So they, they, there was a lot of suspicion around that, but nobody really followed up. Wow. Okay. And, and this is, I promise, the final, final question. To take this full circle back to the ultimate threat to America's homeland with an uh, Iranian Hezbollah-sponsored terror attack, so what what do you think, putting yourself in their shoes, thinking like Hezbollah, thinking like Iran, what is the end game over and beyond making a ton of money off of contraband and you know the crime network, the drug smuggling? 
um, where you look on, on the one hand, they attacked very strongly Argentina in the early 90s. On the other hand, they haven't done much else in t- terms of overt terrorism in the Western Hemisphere. A lot of people say, well, Daniel, then it's not really a threat because they don't want to ruin their business. It's too lucrative. They don't want they, – they, they know we don't give a damn right. about drugs, so we're not going to yeah. stop them with that. But if we start blowing them up, they'll stop us. So maybe it's not a threat at all. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the only thing I would say is that you know Iran is really hitting towards their final end of the revolution, and, and the main catalyst for that is the economy. You know, yeah, they got 150 billion dollars in sanctions early, but they still 300 plus billion dollars in debt, and they, their inflation is through the roof. So, the the revolution uh, can't finance itself until and, and forever, and so it's going to need to move advance. And, and frankly, I think they look at the United States as a tremendous soft target right now because of the political polarization that exists in the country, which is also fomented by these, some of these external actors. And so for that, for my, actually the end game from Iran is really to delegitimize the United States through the loss of blood and treasure, loss of blood, loss of blood in, 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 in the Middle East and, and, and the loss of treasure around the world. They, they want to diminish the economy, which puts them in more strategic alliance with Russia and China, which that alliance doesn't make sense on itself either, but it has happened over the last 10 years. And so what I think they're looking for is they're looking to push the United States completely out of the Middle East, and they're looking to take over Latin America. And, and they're well on their way to doing both of those things. Well, we're, we're going to continue on this trail. And, and like I said, I'm going to speak to some members. I spoke with my buddy Steve King from Iowa. And, you know, everyone's aware broadly that they have a presence in Latin America, but, America, but I think a lot of them are shocked at how um, – how bad it is, and they really want to do something about it, but they're just not equipped. I, I don't see anyone in Congress who's really an expert on this issue. Um, you know, I met you through Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. He he was he was uh, strong enough to hold a field hearing on this. So yeah, we're gonna try to keep this going. And uh, would you please join us again? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Daniel. I think it's great to talk, and I'm glad you're doing this because uh, it's, it's due time that this gets more attention. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Joseph Humeyer. He's executive director of the Secure Free Society, expert in Latin American affairs, and we really enjoyed that. I hope you did as well. Um, look out tomorrow for our next episode with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. We will try to broach this issue as well, but take this to the bank. Iran and Hezbollah in Latin America is possibly the biggest national security strategic threat we face. Until next time, this has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.